So we're continuing our studies in 2 Corinthians. Today, we are at chapter 4, verse 1 through 6. I want to remind um, all of us to think about the culture in which we live. The things are changing so rapidly. And even, even in our worship service, in the very early days of Crossway, uh, we emphasize about bringing your hard copy Bible. That was a big deal. And not anymore. Because we could look at as simple as pulling the app looks really, works really well, and you could have a several different versions. And the worship, say, worship service styles and other things have changed a lot. The critical question is, what would be scripture guidance, what God desires in our ministry, in our church, and even as individual Christ followers? And today, it sheds quite a bit on what we need to realize. I've said it before. I'm sounding like a broken record. But I realize the depth of Second Corinthians. And I, I think all pastors and all serious Christian believers who are in ministry. I'm talking about every member has a ministry in our church. I think we need to read this letter maybe at least once a year. And there is a reason for this because there was a lot of false accusations misunderstanding from the, the Corinthian church. Paul planted and founded the church, but and yet the new leaders from Jerusalem came with letters of a, a recommendation, and they're brash and uh, flamboyant, uh, self-promoting apostles, and Apostle Paul calls them super apostles, false apostles, but the they superlative aspects of their ministry was there. We're going to actually get to know them, know who they are, uh, what they are like a little more. But for today's passage, we need to remember that it is the accusation and doubts that they plan against Paul is causing all this. A severe letter or letter of tears that Paul wrote. And now he's writing this letter as a, his defense about his apostolic ministry. To give you some idea, in chapter 11, verse 2 to 5, we get a glimpse of what Paul's up against. Verse 2, Paul writes, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus, then the one we proclaim, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. 
I alluded to that a few times throughout this series because it's the foundational thought process and daily system that they had is a triumphalism. But today, maybe we could coin the term as theology of glory and Apostle Paul a theology of cross. Now, back in the days during Reformation day, the days, it was Martin Luther who coined the term about theology of glory, and he's reforming the church with the theology of the cross. Let's, let's get a quick review on that. Uh, Lutheran theologian, Gerhard and Ford, uh, wrote this. A theology of glory operates on the assumption that we need is optimistic, what we need is optimistic encouragement, some flattery, some positive thinking, some support to build our self-esteem. Theologically speaking, it operates on the assumption that we are not seriously addicted to sin, that our improvement is both necessary and possible. We need a little boost in our desire to do good works. But the hallmark of a theology of glory is that it will always consider grace as something of a supplement to whatever is left of human will and power. As soon as we read that, we could picture current ministry on TV, on our neighbors already. The dominant, uh, not, 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 not to mention prosperity, full forced, full blunt way of doing prosperity gospel, those ministers and spiritual leaders, but in subtle way, there's a lot going on. On the other hand, um, Mockingbird's glossary of theology defines uh, theology of the cross this way. And when it was written in, in Latin uh, by Martin Luther, theologia crucis was the term in Latin. In this sense, theology of the cross contradicts the assumptions we normally have about life. It says God is most reliable present, reliably present, not in our strengths or our successes or things that we like best about ourselves. Rather, God is present and working in the world exactly in the places, place where a person is falling apart, where they are discovering the limits of their power instead of its possibilities. It also means that God is always involved in, with people and situations exactly as currently are, as they currently are, instead of as they could be, or might be, or used to be. So this is a reminder and a wake-up call for our church as well. What's popular, what's growing, what's continually making improvement, innovating way, is taking over the church and church culture. And we are up against that, swimming up against the current. Let's bring down maybe four things of summary before we jump into today's text. The need when it comes to contrasting theology of glory versus theology of, of the cross, the need is optimistic encouragement of self. Theology of glory, but theology of the cross, renunciation of self, deny yourself and take up the cross 
and follow me, Jesus said. When it comes to brokenness, suffering, and, and pain, the theology of glory, this is something definitely avoid. By all means, avoid, minimize all pain. But theology of the cross, there is spiritual wisdom, openness in, in pain and brokenness, something that I cannot ever achieve by God's grace because I'm humbled, because I'm broken before God. I'm in a better state. Something to embrace. I mean, you would answer that along with me. When was the time that you experienced God most powerful, vivid way? When you were in pain. When you're going through the brokenness. What about mode of operation? The regular day-to-day -day mode of operation, you could become a Christian, but self-improvement is the mode of operation for theology of glory, as opposed to the theology, theology of the cross points to power through weakness, which happens to be Second Corinthians theme. This could happen like this, brothers and sisters. Orange County culture, if they live in Irvine, they're Tustin Ranch, and you've been around here, you know, Tustin, North Tustin, good part of Santa Ana, Santiago Park. I know Cox's and Kim, or us, lived around that. The east side of Five Freeway which is really nice, Santa Ana. Um, how are we going to really preach the gospel? If we don't think, if you're not vigilant, it could look, look like this. Oh, you got a good house and nice kids, and your marriage is going well, your career is continually booming. Way to go. But you know what? There's a little bit of emptiness if you have Jesus, your life will be full, abundant life. Once you come to church, that is false gospel. But it is easy to preach that way and share it that way. The ultimate motivation is my fulfillment through God in theology of glory. The ultimate motivation in theology of the cross is God's glory through me. And in God's glory, my joy is complete. The fullness, joy, fullness of my joy is in God. God's glory. So today, as he is parenthetical, like he brings up the nature of his ministry, Chapter 3, he laid the theological basis. And he becomes a little more practical about his posture, attitude, why he does what he does. Verse 1 through 6, only 6 verses, packed with deep insights that we need to really hold on to. And I'll, I'll call it a four- Components of true gospel ministry. Do you remember um, we used to say Christian without many adjectives? And Eugene Peterson said the naked noun is a healthy noun. What a brilliant remark. In other words, if you say a pastor of course, he's a godly pastor. Of course, he's God-loving, Bible-believing pastor. But you need to put an adjective these days. And the, the adjective Eugene Peterson likes, the unbusy pastor. Because I get that letter all the time, advertisement. For busy pastors, here's a tool that you could use. 
Even Christians also too, right? Christians are humble, loving, merciful people who follow Christ and Christ's way. But even in, in our nation, Christian has a bad name, isn't it? Because of all kinds of wacky things are going on. So, in that sense, the sermon title to this, this morning is a true gospel ministry. Of course, all the gospel ministry has to be true gospel. There are four components I see, at least in four in, in this passage. Start with the verse one. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. First component is source. Its source of the true gospel ministry is not the charisma of a leader or organization, but the mercy of God. I want you to know, to know Paul is just wrapped around intentionality. So he doesn't use a word as a filler. Um, uh, you know what I mean kind of thing? When he says the mercy of God, he really means it. Let, let's bring it out even more. First Timothy verse one through for chapter one verse twelve through sixteen gives a glimpse of what he means by that his source is in the mercy of God. I thank him, he writes, who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, prosecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received God, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Some other translated chief of the sinners, right? Verse 16, For I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to be believe in him for eternal life. So in other words, Paul is saying, I have experienced this. That's the source that I got. My good stuff. I have experienced the mercy. And you too can experience mercy of God. And Paul, Paul writes, we do not lose heart. Why? Because we have this ministry by the mercy of God. Actually, that phrase he repeats in verse 16 again, but we'll wait until that part, that passage, to understand what he means by we do not lose heart. But for now, let me mention this. I go to pastor's meeting once a month, and then I, I, ha I hear this horrendous story about, I mean, it's a soul care group, so we don't exchange brilliant ideas how, how you could use this idea for your church, anything like that, but our soul. And I, I, I used to go, to as a, go there as a discipline, spiritual discipline, now, once a month, I need it. Because 
the sense that I get is Ministry is really hard, very, very difficult. And one of the pastors would just kind of with stresses and he's sharing his heart is, do you guys want ever your children to do this? Of course not. All the things that he's experiencing, I can't even share because of confidentiality. But I feel like that. In the middle of the night, I wake up several times just worrying about church and stress that I get, misunderstanding I, I have to deal with. And they go, why in the world am I doing this? My youthful days, there was a, some limelight effect. Like People watch me. When I preach, oh, this is good. But behind the scene, there's so much going on. So this passage is so encouraging to me. Paul, who has gone so much more than me, is saying, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. He repeats. This is primary reason because his source of ministry is the mercy of God. That he doesn't deserve it, but God supplies that his ministry is Sufficient because of mercy of God. God supplies everything he needs. That's the first component. Second component, it gets a little more practical here. It's approach of true gospel ministry is not cunning or word, God's word tempering way but open, sincere way of telling the truth, whole truth of God. Verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to temper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So, uh, negatively speaking, he's saying we renounce disgraceful, underhanded ways, shams, the things that religious hucksters do. We renounce it already. And practically, he even spells out even more. Um, I would call it a gimmicks and tempering the word of God. Who would dare to temper the word of God? But it's easy. When you are oriented in a culture and, and you become a shop owner and you preach so that customers stay, become like that. Of course, the Easter is the greatest Sunday for outreach. Yes, it is also the Resurrection Sunday. But church grows if you do this day really well. And I, I just couldn't believe these things were happening. But on the far side of extreme... The, the church is giving away iPads, hundreds of iPads, and some raffle thing for gigantic screen TV and a car. Come, Easter Sunday, you could win a car. Of course, we, when we hear that, it's that's ridiculous. But you know what? What are some gimmicks that we could have? I, I, I'm, my previous ministry was seeker-sensitive ministry. For the record, I'm going to say this. If you do seeker-sensitive ministry in a right manner, with a clear conscience, without compromising the words of God, using easy language for 
unbelievers understand, becoming sensitive of their needs. All those are good. But usually what goes out with the baby, with the backwater is the ba baby as well. You compromise. And you basically say, oh, we have a tremendous singles ministry. This event, you will get surprised. The church could be like this. I've done things like that. And then people come, wow, if church could be like this, I'm in. The problem is, they're not interested in prayer. They're not interested in discipleship. They're not interested in missions. They are interested in self-fulfillment. Make my life happier. We are responsible, but that gimmicks that we play, even in our church. How do you temper the word of God? When you look at Philippians, Paul wrote this in prison. But count how many the word rejoice and joy show up. So this is how to temper the word of God. The key is to have a joyful life. And we take that verses to make what we want to say. That's called proof texting. You could say almost everything if you take in, if you are taking the text out of the context and to support your thesis. That's why there are so many cults out there. They use Bible. But once again, to be practical, it's not so much of those extreme cases. It's about positive thinking, uh, pop psychology, self-help kind of approach mixed with the gospel. Somehow we think that, oh, this is less offensive and this is less more appealing. There's a comedian who makes this uh, video about church and church shopping. John Christ, I think. When church shopping video, it's just hilarious. The reason why it's so funny is he has a pinch of the truth. What's reality of in our lives, right? And then he goes uh, explaining to the, the, the guide who are um, helping them, the young couple, to find the church. He's like, um, we want just very dynamic, really good messages. How should I say this? He goes, TED Talks with Bible verses. That's all we want. 20 minutes, few Bible verses, and they're brilliant in their presentation. That's tempering the word of God. I am not excusing of uh, some things that I want to continually improve. But I will not apologize in my intention to give you, to share the full, whole truth of God's counsel. So when I go more than 15 minutes, please bear with me. Today I'm going to try. Uh, the reason why Paul is doing this because he knows that God is the only one. The Spirit of God is the only one who could open the eyes of fallen human heart. Not any gimmicks. I mean, one of the sad things that could happen uh, is that people who are sitting in day, Sunday after Sunday, really thinking that they are Christians. 
Bible-believing, born-again Christians. In effect, if not, self-delusional. Unless there is a clear renunciation of self, repentance, and surrender to Christ as Lord, there is no salvation. Third component is message. The message of true gospel ministry is not ourselves or our organization, our church, denomination, but Jesus as Lord. Verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case of the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the, um, of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. It's interesting to, to note that Paul acknowledges the, the work of the devil behind the scene. And it is a scary uh, truth that we need to encounter as well. He already mentioned about veil in Moses' face. The veil represented the blindness and the obstacles and that just spiritual numbness that people cannot see the true light. And in this case, what he's pointing out is that Jesus' face has eternal glory shining from his face. And that is the same as the glory of the gospel, the light, seeing the light of the glory of the gospel. So because of that, his message is Jesus and focus on Jesus. But notice that he said Jesus as Lord. The gospel in one phrase is Jesus as Lord. And obviously, in a Roman, you know, Greco-Roman world, when Caesar was the Lord, in like a deity level of that, anyone who says someone else is the Lord, someone else is the Lord, that will be treason, right? But in this case, what we what Paul is saying is. Jesus is Lord of the universe. Jesus has the power and authority to forgive our sins, to bring eternal life. And then even this, I think in, in this day and age, we are facing some confusion. Why actually back in 15, 20 years ago, it was a most controversial theological topic. The people were writing books against each other. Can Jesus be your Savior but not Lord in order for you to be saved? The people who are all about grace and saying, yes, you become obedient to Lordship Later, as a discipleship, and obviously, the other camp said, that's nonsense. Unless you follow Jesus as Lord, that you are not repentant. I mean, actually, it, it, people like John Stott um, points this out really early on, even 60s in John John starts book, you know, flag, flagship book in 
basic Christianity in 1960s, before John MacArthur and others are wrote on that. But think about this. The reason why Jesus is Lord in the gospel is that because Jesus is the Jesus is God who has power and authority over sin, over death, and over the devil, he has power to be our Savior. A Savior is a function that he does, not his identity fully. So shall we think about Jesus as someone who gives me what I need? And it sounds again, sounds like a theology of glory again, right? A means to an end. What I really want is self-fulfillment, but this sin thing is bothering me, and it's an obstacle. Jesus died on the cross. He took away my sin. Hallelujah. So I'm, I'm going to receive Christ. But the true gospel is Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and he exalted before all, above all names, so that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord, so that we will follow him and become like his image. The purpose of salvation. God's plan and purpose is not our betterment. That he wants God-like people, godly people. They look like God. God's character reflects on us. That's what it means to be Christ follower. Once again, the tempering way, the tempering God's word could be like a gradual the ripple effect. Um, we could talk about seven keys to successful marriage and uh, keys to um, be a godly parent. And all those are kind of seemingly good purpose, but when we begin to drift away from the center of the gospel, center of God's word, which is Christ, and it becomes problematic, isn't it? So the value of this passage is not that we are going to be one way or the other, but we could be in slippery slope of that spectrum. Would you be mindful when you talk to your friends as a Christian? And sometimes it's easy to talk about what you like about church, church life. And I'm happy that you are proud of our church. But the message should be Christ. Not over our, our organization, your ideas. As much as uh, apologetics is has its place, we need to keep in mind is that it's not a convincing logic that changes people, but Christ and Christ alone, the power that he has as the Lord of the universe can change their views and their heart. The veil can be lifted. That leads us to number four. The power of true gospel ministry is, the is not our techniques, but God who has shone in our hearts to see the light of the glory on Jesus' face. Verse five, again. Let's just put it in the context again. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. With ourselves, your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let, not, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see the logic here, right? Paul is saying, with the simple word, God created light in the darkness. Let there be light. In the same way and power and authority, he could give you the light in your eyes, in your spiritual vision. So in that sense, I think we need to really think about what we are really relying on. Are we relying on our well-packaged presentation? Are we relying on my good moral life? Are we relying on some preachers and famous people who could present the gospel really well, keep pointing to that YouTube or, or something, a book? As much as those things have value in it? Or are we relying on the power of God who could shine light in the middle of darkness? And the way we preach and share gospel will be different too. When do not, they do not re receive Christ, it will be not our fault. When they receive Christ, it will be not our merit, our crown. You guys know I've been involved in uh, parachurch ministry, pa Campus Crusade for Christ. Now they call it CRU. One of the best things that I learned working not only growing up as a student, but working as a staff worker on campus, the Bill Wright's definition of success in witnessing. Successful witnessing is to present the gospel, to, to talk about Christ plainly in the power of God's Holy Spirit and leave the result in the hand of God. Leaving the result in the hand of God has freed me so much. The fear of rejection, failure, feeling like. So in, in our sense, I think we need to think about our own um, identification with gospel ministry in, in this sense. This is a glorious truth that each one of us can represent as a messenger, as an ambassador of Christ. And those who look like very stubborn and oh, he or she will never become Christian, but what do you know? Those are sometimes more open to receive. And those who are very nice people, law-abiding, they, they are so nice people that you think that, oh, they could become Christian like that. They're full of self-righteousness, isn't it? We ought to pay attention to this glorious truth, not as a warning only, but really comfort. In Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 16 through 21, same apostle, Paul prays for the church in Ephesus in that region. And his earnest prayer is this, and this ought to be our prayer as well. Verse 16 below. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and the revel of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? 
and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. So I'm thinking about just my own ministry, the things that I feel depressed about, lack of progress. There's a, a you know, little bit of a face reality there too. We need to face the reality. But oftentimes this is re- leads to self-effort and self-reliance. Naturally, I'm just very pragmatic, goal-oriented people, a person. And what I stopped doing at Crossway is I stopped going to these big conferences. And two, three times that you, you go and go, wow, there's so many things I could have done. In the meantime, we could lose confidence in the word of God. In the meantime, we become self-reliant and God-reliant, spirit-dependent people. Whatever you face as a Christian right now, this is a glorious truth that applies to you as well. By grace, His mercy, God's all-powerful presence is in you. David Wells um, as a theologian, I think several books that he wrote has very eye-opening uh, for me and an encouraging. And this is one of quotes that I remembered and I brought with this mindset that hopefully this will give us hope as well. Wells writes, there is a breeze blowing. I see it in the deep discontent that is being voiced with a threadbare state, worn out state, another word, of the evangelical world with its empty worship, its market driven superficiality, and its trivial thought. It is a breeze blowing toward better, deeper, more honest things. I suspect that it is the Holy Spirit who is blowing, that it is his breeze, and that these leaves that are shaking are the signs of better things to come within an evangelical faith that is thus being reformed. Let us all pray that it is so. I hope so too. Oftentimes, my paradigm shift was invigorating and doing this church for 10 years now. It's been such a joyful ride. But one thing I could share is I, I feel lonely. I left the school of thoughts, the pragmatic world, and fast-growing churches and then uh, it was a joke, but it's kind of truthful insight into that when our elders were talking about a possibility of uh, looking for new facility for our church. And then the consultant was sitting in, real estate, commercial real estate agent, helping us to think through this. So you ought to think about uh, your growth rate as well. So because you don't want to go in there uh, within 
six months a year that you outgrow that space. And then I said, oh, we have a little worry about that. And then one of the elders said, we have no worry about that. <laughs> uh, we had two or three families a year. But let's believe in God who is almighty. That it is such better way of doing ministry, doing church life together. When we follow scripture guidance rather than worldly pragmatic principles. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today's word. It really gives us life and encouragement as well as uh, vigilance for we are surrounded by the worldly principles of theology of glory within the, within the church. So we pray that you will continually guide us, uh, become our sufficiency as church. And even in the reality that we face with the finance and ability to find a, a good site nearby the freeway, all that, we feel so humble. We feel weak. But we also know that your power is perfected in our weakness. So come, Lord Jesus. Rule over our hearts and our church and lead us. This is your church. And we follow you with all our hearts. In the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.